Welcome to Self Studies, a podcast that explores how identity can inform a person's lived experiences and mental health. I'm Laura Duper, and today I'll be talking with Muni Broad about third culture identity, LGBTQIA identity, and what it looks like to show up in vulnerability and create safe spaces. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. My name is Muni Broad. I'm a psychotherapist in New York. My pronouns are he and him. You know, part of my work is really identity-based. You know, I went into this field to work with LGBTQ populations, and I've devoted most of my career to that, almost 10 years working in community. Being a gay man of color is part of my professional identity. So, you know, that's part of who I am. And I, I, I think integrating this third culture kid discussion uh, is pretty exciting considering I am also one myself. That's amazing. It has been so fun and fascinating in these conversations to see how particular areas of focus kind of come for clinicians and how they come. And usually it, you know, aligns with some aspect of their own identity. And of course, sometimes that identity is shared in their professional life and sometimes is not. And so it's always, it's always a fascinating conversation to see. So I'm curious how you alluded to some of it, but how you came to your particular area of focus. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think as uh, a young gay kid myself, I, you know, I also had my own struggles with, with anxiety, specifically through my college years. So, you know, I found that a therapist really was able to get me through a very challenging time. And being sort of queer affirming was something that wasn't very easy to come across. I'm not too far along in my age, not to date myself, but back when, back when, when I was looking, you know, for a therapist in college, it wasn't easy to find. And a lot of folks didn't disclose that as part of their professional identity. So that's also part of why, you know, you know, I do that. You mentioned this in your intro, but I want to get into this third culture experience identity. And could you just start off by kind of explaining from your perspective what that means to be a third culture kid, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, You know, I think I remember reading this actually during some of my college psych classes. And, you know, I think uh, it all started with, uh, I think, uh, psychologist Ruth Asim, who I believe in in the 1950s coined the term. I think her research with her husband, who I think was an anthropologist, uh, actually really looked at folks and kids who were raised in a culture other than their parents' culture. And I think what they found was, first of all, a lot more interest than they anticipated Mm -hmm. and how just these developmental years can be really affected when you are a kid that doesn't necessarily fit into either culture. Yeah, I was doing some some reading on on her research and one of the quotes was like home is everywhere and nowhere. And does that does that resonate? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think that some of the research have really has really shown the resilience that a lot of third culture kids do have and the ability to sort of acclimate to different cultures, to be more open-minded, to sort of, you know, find a sense of place, even if, you know, with other third culture kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, there is an element of loneliness. I think that's really captured mm-hmm. in that quote, right? I think that sometimes can manifest. And I've seen working with clients who do identify as third culture kids or and immigrant kids as well, that that is a challenging emotion to sit with. Yeah, and since you 
have identified yourself in this category as well. I'm curious however much you feel like sharing with us or are comfortable sharing with us, would you mind telling us what how it's kind of shaped your sense of self, this this particular third culture kid identity? Yeah, yeah. Well, my dynamic colleagues will kill me for talking about myself on this podcast. That's okay. We'll, we'll work that. <laughs> this one, it's allowed. Yeah, I'm <laughs> well, not a client. <laughs> but, you know, I uh, my mother is Korean. My dad is Lebanese. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, we grew up overseas, you know. So when I read some of the initial sort of work on third culture kids, I definitely identified, but a lot of the research was very U.S. specific, right? But basically, we spent a lot of my childhood overseas with my brother and um, going to an international school in Thailand where we lived because my dad was in the airline industry and my mother was a flight attendant. You know, I resonated pretty strongly with that identity. In fact, it gave a language to the sense of lack of belonging that I sort of experienced growing up. Did you find that being with other kids in that international school and other kids who maybe also identified in that way was was helpful? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, having that mirroring in your experience of being a third culture kids, kid with other folks um, really takes away a sense of isolation, I think, that some folks can feel. And just a little bit about our story coming and immigrating to the United States was a really big transition, actually, especially because there were fewer third culture kids here than say at an international school. So that was a big transition. Do you find that, of course, it gets dangerous with these categories of a third culture um, or cross-cultural and seeing it as kind of a blanket identity when really, of course, there are so many distinct stories within each, each category and each identity. Do you find that it is a helpful identifier? Do you find that there are shortcomings of from it? Uh, do you find that it's helpful to have kind of a common uh, identifier with other people who may be experiencing the same? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes the limitations is, is the focus on culture and less on identity, right? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is I think identity is a synthesis of the way you perceive yourself and the way the world perceives you, mm-hmm. right? And culture really is, is much more around the external factors, I think, that, you know, determine your childhood, your upbringing, et cetera. So I do think uh, integrating identity work and being able to do deeper self-explorations has to necessitate someone to look beyond just looking at culture. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating because with this identity, it is based on the fact that you are not being raised in the culture of your parents, right? If I'm understanding, if I'm kind of uh, identifying that correctly. And whereas, you know, you might identify... Um, for example, with the Korean community or the Lebanese community, but then there's this third identifying factor that is we don't live in those communities. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm always impressed at some of those third culture kids that seem to be, you know, multilingual. I've, I've, I think I've mm. barely mastered one, so I'm still working on that. <laughs> but, you know, I wish I was fluent in in Korean, in Arabic. But the truth is, I think the pressure of also an immigrant identity makes it really, uh, you know, there's some pressure to sort of, you know, acculturate and assimilate into a dominant culture. 
And mm. I think sometimes that can create some dissonance with folks too, right? Who am I? Where do I belong? Those are the big questions I think that come up for folks. I'm curious about how your experience yourself and with your clients, how you have experienced acculturation within the context of being a third culture person. And I'm comparing it to and kind of trying to understand it within the context of perhaps if you're immigrating from your country of origin and that is the culture you're coming from and and now acculturating to the dominant culture. Um, And how do you feel like that relates when it's you're experiencing acculturation in a dominant culture, but you are a third culture kid? Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's a really tough adjustment, I think. I think being an immigrant in this country, you're also internalizing and beginning to see sort of the socio-political dynamics that come into play, how you negotiate the black-white binary in America that's that that race is constructed as in this country. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of folks, I, I think the question to ask, like, what am I acculturating to, right? It's like, do I want to be part of sort of this... Uh, whatever the dominant culture would be. And I guess for, for this discussion's sake, we could say, you know, it's, it's wanting to acclimate to a culture that can offer you opportunities and access to power and the ability to further your education. But, you know, the question is also, what, what do you lose? Mm-hmm. You know, and in my particular case, it's the ability to speak three languages, right? You, mm-hmm. <laughs> you sort of feel like you have to give up certain parts of yourself to assimilate and acculturate. And I think part of my work is being able to push against that with some of my clients, right? How do we not sort of feel like we have to give up parts of ourselves in order to fit in? And I think that's interesting that you distinguish between what am I actually acculturating to? What is the thing? What is the the power or this or the systemic construct that I want to be a party to? And that what am I giving up? Because of course there's dominance in many areas of identity. Right. And, you know, I think what's missing with some of this discussion around culture is sort of the way sort of oppression and whiteness and privilege comes into play, right? That sometimes these wanting to acculturate into a dominant culture in the United States is, is almost wanting to, to be a part of white America, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. And to access similar institutions that a lot of white folks have in this country. And so I think developing a racial consciousness, developing sort of the ability to see where you intersect with different identities around you is an important part of that process to figure out who you are. I am interested in, as you work with many people in the LGBTQIA plus community as well, and so I would love to hear you talk a bit more about occupying this space of of holding multiple minority identities and how you see that play out for your clients or if there's anything you want to share about your own experience? Uh, I feel like therapy is such a scarce resource these days, right? Mm -hmm. And with everything that's going on, I think on top of the pandemic, on top of all of these stressors that folks are dealing with, I think, um, you know, being a queer person of color, being a BIPOC, queer person, you know, brings a whole sort of cumulative stress kind of model that can really impact the way people function. I think a lot of times it manifests what I'm seeing, especially in my clients, in some intense anxiety, right, and the inability to resolve that. So 
you know, a lot of my work with queer folks is beginning with the real examination of how different identities have impacted them. And yeah, I mean, that's where I, that's where I begin. I can imagine how having all of the, the accumulation of the stresses of those identities and the, uh, and the claiming and the, what are you giving up and trying to assimilate to perhaps the more dominant culture and how that can just become compounded. What do you feel like makes the LGBTQIA plus experience distinct for, for people of color or for multicultural people? Well, I think in the context of being able to access therapy services, the reason I, I'm so vocal about sort of at least my identity and the way I present myself in the field is that there's less mirroring out there. You know, the, the majority of folks who are still in this field identify across mostly cis, white, heterosexual spaces. So I think finding those spaces to begin with of, of non-judgment and acceptance and of also being able to process racism is, is what I have noticed a fairly unique thing right now. I'm hopeful that more clinicians of color will come into the field mm-hmm. and that we'll have more more spaces of affirmation, acknowledgement that, that need to be there in the clinical space. Do you feel like things are, are shifting at all? I know that's a horribly vague question, but do you find that as your time as a clinician and, you know, with all of the political and social upheaval, if, um, you know, to put it that way, for lack of a better term, do you feel like things are shifting? Do you feel like more attention is being given to these people who are so deserving of of having more understanding around their experience? You know, I think that the past four or five years have been particularly traumatic for queer folks as, you know, we've gone through a really challenging administration politically Mm -hmm. in this Mm -hmm. country. I think to see the demonization of queer folks and trans folks and people of color just at the forefront, it's been really scary, right? Mm -hmm. But I've noticed that our community is incredibly resilient. Mm-hmm. And they will find spaces to to fight back. And we have, I think, even in therapeutic communities, opened the dialogue around race and racism in the clinical space, mm-hmm. um, homophobia and transphobia in the clinical space, you know, topics that I, as a younger clinician, didn't really have a lot of access to. So mm-hmm. I am hopeful that yeah. in certain spaces that things are getting better, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah. I'd love to see spaces like this where folks are willing to dialogue about this and ask questions and even sit in silence and not know what to do because it's in Mm -hmm. that discomfort that we can find solidarity and community and ultimately change. That's what I'm hopeful for. Beautifully put. Absolutely. And just to touch on one more thing, I think, you know, in some ways, you know, the pandemic opening up telehealth services has been Mm -hmm. I think, really beneficial. A lot of queer folks, I think, have challenges with access to quality therapy. And I think this sort of remote model right now, which has been shown to be empirically as sort of effective in certain instances as in-person sessions, has been a game changer for queer folks. The ability to access services, the ability to, you know, find queer providers in so many more spaces, the lack of time restrictions with with travel and things like that, accessing rural communities. It's, It's been so wonderful 
to see that. I am really thrilled to see that as well. I, I think it takes away a lot of barriers of entry. I was curious, um, kind of going back a little bit to your journey <laughs> to therapy, because I know that there's a lot of interconnectedness here um, with who you see and your own identity. And I, I don't mean to overstate that, but I know that that is a big part of your professional persona as well. So I know that you have talked a lot about how you didn't really have access to queer-friendly spaces and to BIPOC-friendly spaces that were, you know, were affirming and and really um, giving you that space to process and as as a young man seeking therapy. And so I'm, I just want to, and I I know that you talk about finding a safe place in the arts or in in a more creative space and. I guess I'm just curious how you have integrated the things that you've maybe learned in those spaces into your own practice and where you kind of see, I guess this is hitting on kind of what you hope for the mental health space to kind of continue to create a safe place within that context. Yeah, I appreciate you asking that, you know, um, Oh, goodness. I don't even know where to start with this question. Um, A lot of queer folks I've worked with who are still in that field or have continued to participate in those fields gravitate to that because it is an outlet for for emotional pain, emotional access, and the ability to synthesize sort of emotional material in a safer place, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that was my access point, similarly. You know, I noticed over time, I'm not that great at it. So (laughs) it's time time to, you know, Uh focus on different talents. I always feel like I love two things in my life. It's music and people. And I guess, you know, I'm still learning the guitar. So still got it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I can relate. Yeah. But that being said, I, I really do notice there is a creative spirit that still thrives in the therapeutic process. You know, the ability to connect to somebody in many ways is an art right? Especially if you're bringing your full self, your authenticity, and all of a sudden a stranger becomes someone very special to you. Mm-hmm. You know, I, mm-hmm. I hesitate because I almost said friend, but I'm like, you know, no, <laughs> not friend. This is a therapeutic professional relationship. Uh, but there is a connection, I think, that, that does transcend something in the room. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think the arts are, are just invaluable, right? And look, just to jump into pop culture, just a little bit here, RuPaul says it best, okay? If you can't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love somebody else? Mm-hmm. I Amen. That, <laughs> <laughs> I think that act of self-love is really such an essential piece of the work, right? Mm-hmm. To begin to let that thrive and to begin to bring that out into the world. Because I think there's so much shame that, that I think queer folks really do mm-hmm. struggle with. And I think there is a little bit of overlap being a third culture kid because you're so consumed with observing your surroundings, there's less of an inner exploration that I think that mm-hmm. it's done sometimes. Yeah, I'm so I'm so fascinated with this because I think if you're experiencing this kind of everywhere but nowhere is homeness and you're experiencing, you know, being on the outside of the dominant culture, um, being in the queer community or being in the BIPOC community and you are looking for 
safe places, right? And and of course we all of course everybody is looking for safe places, but there are less safe places if you are on the outskirts of of the dominance, you know? And I love what you said about the arts because I think there is so much accessibility there and there is such a kind of let your freak flag fly like like place you know and I'm in the theater community as well and so I I've you know so many so many friends in this space and it is you know this it is therapeutic right and in a sense and to find because it's a safe place where they can be themselves and we can all express and so that is such a fascinating part of your journey (laughs) I love that I think I think humor is a big part of that too right to I think that humor can serve as both, I guess we bring this up in the context of RuPaul since we're, since you're, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's both a way to sort of, uh, you know, put on armor to cope with stress. And at the same time, it's a release, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think um, we have to find spaces of joy and laughter, especially in a time like this. I think Mm -hmm. there's so much fatigue right now with everything that's going on with the pandemic. I think we don't want to ignore the realities that, trans communities of colors are disproportionately affected by health disparities and violence and discrimination. Mm -hmm. For some queer folks and BIPOC queer folks, you know, accessing therapy is a matter of life and death. Yes. And in those moments, you have to find some joyfulness, you know, Mm -hmm. just makes life a little bit more manageable in those times. Yeah. And I'm also curious about you know, at this intersectionality of, of culture and occupying these multiple identities, how you see the culture around therapy and the stigma around therapy play out in your experience with, with clients? You know, I always say to my clients, it's a lot easier for me to be on that side of the chair than it is to be where you're sitting. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes you know, certain therapists really are a lot more comfortable in the position of authority and of power in that chair, right? Well, you get Mm -hmm. to sort of flex your expertise and your training. But what I like to say is vulnerability is a powerful tool in the session too. You know, me being able to come here and tell you a little bit about my story is so counterintuitive. I'm like, I don't Mm -hmm. want to talk about me. Like, let's Mm -hmm. talk about you. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the willingness to face, whether it's your own fears, your own prejudice, your own complicitness in racism, Mm -hmm. your own homophobia, that takes Mm -hmm. a lot of courage. And I'd love to see folks in the therapeutic community being more willing to be able to do that because I think Mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to be an expert than it Mm -hmm. is to be a vulnerable person. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you should be in therapy talking about yourself to your client. Like that's that's not what I'm saying at all. (laughs) But I think that self-examination is what we need to do as a community as well. Mm -hmm. Because I'm not going to lie. I have had some pretty painful experiences as uh, a client myself seeking Mm -hmm. therapy from folks who are unwilling to acknowledge that maybe they can cause some harm by their own homophobia or their own assumptions or their own racism. You know, and that was part of my journey to want to do this work because I saw how healing it was when I found somebody who was willing to look in the mirror and say, hey, you know what? I mean, I'm a, <laughs> my first therapist. The wonderful therapist I really liked was this um, a lovely straight Irish man who just was a rock star. 
but was so willing to look in the mirror and say, hey, I see my blind spots and it's really scary for me, but I'm willing to sit here with you and really see you and acknowledge that, yeah, I can be part of the problem at times. I mean, that takes a lot of courage, right? To be able to say like, sometimes I have blind spots, I have mistakes and I don't know the answers. It's not an easy thing to say as a trained professional. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels like there are so few places in the whole world that we see that, right? So true, right? We live in such a hyper-capitalist culture where it's all about, you know, successes, polish, perfectionism. That listen, you got to be a hot mess sometimes, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let your freak flag fly, as as, as you would say. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I, I'm thinking back to something you said about, you know, this, this Im- really important work of self-examination, both, both as a clinician and as a client. And really, let's just be honest, all humans, please, can we all look inside a little, um, me included, please. But I, I know you said that, you know, as a, as a third culture kid as a um as a BIPOC person as an LGBTQIA plus person like there is so much time and rightfully so that must be spent looking outwardly right and both I mean for risk and for to ward off threat and to be safe but then do you find that that is is a hard practice to integrate into your clients lives (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, and this is where some of my training around dialectical behavioral therapy has been really effective here to really push against sort of rigidity, hard and fast rules, that a lot of it is balancing sort of polarities and dialectics, right? Looking outward and inward, you know, for instance, in a session, if things are constantly focused on the outward dynamics, right, whether it's processing, um, you know, oppression, uh, histories of discrimination, the socio-political climate, you know, listen, I have, we can talk about Trump for an hour and 25 minutes, right? And all the damage that has gone on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then what are we missing? Where's the inner self-examination here, mm-hmm. right? And um, the emotional sort of connection that's happening. So I do think it's really about, about balance, right? And I think in some ways, what I really identified with some of this uh, third culture kid stuff is that you have this ability to look inward and outward, right? A lot of third culture kids really focus on the outside. You're assessing for safety. Do I belong? Where do I fit? But then there's a missing piece. There is less of the inner self-examination, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think, I don't really know where I was going with that, but I do think there's something about balancing our inner selves and our outer selves. That's such hard work, right? I mean, it's so easy and correct, right, to to point fingers because there are so many things wrong in our culture and in our world. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah, and I think, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. <laughs> I wonder if you, you know, as, as a clinician and as a person who identifies with these multiple identities, if you find that, you know, much like you were saying about your clients, there's this just accumulation of stress and anxiety. Is it just overwhelming? <laughs> is it, is it, how do you remain hopeful? Cause you also are, are so hopeful and you have 
like you said, humor and joy and pushing towards something that could be better. You're absolutely right. I think cumulative stress is really compounding and it, you know, can be very overwhelming. I think, you know, and just looking at some of the statistics with LGBTQ populations, right, you know, psychological stress, you know, higher suicide rates among, among LGBTQ folks, it really is a crisis, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why I love that when you brought up the arts, like, sometimes there's that desire for, for, for beauty, for, for, for art, for connection, that sort of serves to balance that a little bit, you know? And um, I guess what I'm trying to say, it's, it's too hard to be in pain all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. And there are moments of respite that we have to find. Mm-hmm. And I have been amazed at, at some of the folks that I've worked with that have been able to show their incredible resilience against so many odds, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying we want to be dismissive or we want to invalidate people's experiences, mm-hmm. but I do think tapping into the possibility of finding joy in the everyday is a really powerful thing. I think that there's, um, you know, kind of going back to this <laughs> dialogue between what is what is externally perceived of me and what is what do I perceive of myself, and I, I'm interested in kind of something you were you were saying earlier about this where you summed up identity so well as being this accumulation of of perceptions about yourself and how you are perceived right and do you find in these contexts with the clients that you work with that that one dominates the other does that make sense like do, how do you find that 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 dialogue between what is externally being said about you or your community or um, what is what you actually perceive of yourself. I think it's so hard to not want external validation, right? Mm -hmm. That external need to be, to be loved, to be liked is such a powerful thing. And -hmm. I think perhaps we want to live in an individualistic culture, but the reality is it is really hard to see yourself in the eyes of other people and maybe not be a hundred percent satisfied with what that is. I think that takes an exceptional amount of vulnerability to say, yeah, I, I do care about what people think, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how they perceive me. And I think that can be sort of a very powerful thing that can impact our sense of self-worth and self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's why the act of sort of self-examination of self-love and self-compassion is really important part of the work, right? To be able to do that inner work in a therapeutic context and 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 find joyfulness there too. Yeah, and especially because there's so much that we can't change about people's perceptions, although that is so hard to swallow and understand. Yeah, I think a lot of folks assume that if we control the environment, it'll shift our inner self. Right. Mm-hmm. If I only had the right job, if I only had the right partner, if I only had mm-hmm. X, Y, Z, mm-hmm. you know, but, you know, if there is no sort of solid foundation of self-acceptance and of working through maybe deeper shame, it's really hard to get to that point where you can find joy in there every day. I'm curious, too, as as you we've talked a bit about intersectionality and this occupying these multiple identities and I'm curious how you see them intersecting at large (laughs) I know that it's different for every individual but do you feel that 
you or your clients often find yourselves identifying more with with maybe one or the other or find more acceptance or safety as maybe a third culture kid or multi or BIPOC or LGBTQIA+, is that, do you find that or do you find that there is a lot of overlap and there is more movement towards intersectionality in those spaces? I think there is more movement towards integrating that. You know, I think um, my clinical space is really based on sort of non-judgment. You know, one of the things I like to say is your the fullness of your identity is accepted in my space, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that can sometimes be conflicting identities. That can be, mm-hmm. I have no idea what, who, who I am, what I want, what I care about. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it does begin with that space of non-judgment and also the willingness for me to see that, you know, I don't occupy every space that you walk in the room with too, right? Mm-hmm. That I have my blind spots too. And, I'm, mm-hmm. and I think the willingness to, to make mistakes and the willingness to say, sometimes I don't know and mm-hmm. step out of the role as, as you know, as the expert, I think allows those questions of, I'm not sure and I don't know to flourish and be okay in the room. Yeah, I wanna be in your therapy space. (laughs) That's beautiful. Yeah, I'm thinking about how, you know, accessibility is a a huge thing and is a huge thing in, in therapy. And I'm also curious about, you know, this, we keep talking about this compounding of stress and, of kind of wrestling with with identity and with the culture and i'm curious just in the context of kind of hierarchy of needs and and there are there is such threat to these communities in a, in a big way especially in the past several years and i'm curious if you've seen that impact people's willingness to Willingness slash, of course, willingness is always coupled with accessibility, of course, because we don't know really um, what is keeping people from therapy. But I'm curious if you've seen that in the in the mental health space, if, you know, a stigma around or a do I need that? Like, do I can I afford to to give time here when I'm fighting for my life in a lot of ways? You know, I think a lot of it is fear. I think a fear of rejection, a fear mm-hmm. of judgment, a fear that somebody won't be able to support me in the way that I need. And I think this is where some of the history of psychotherapy has to be acknowledged, right? They have mm-hmm. been predominantly white, cis, male spaces for a mm-hmm. long time, and they still continue to be fairly white spaces mm-hmm. um, and heterosexual spaces. So I think that. There is an initial mistrust, I think, of therapeutic systems out there, whether it's psychiatry, psychology, social work, mental health counseling. And I think it's up to clinicians to begin to examine what that looks like, you know, and to look at our blind spots and be able to say, what are we, what are we missing? Where do we need to do better to make folks feel safe? And that starts with our own self-examination and our own analysis of the history of this profession, which in some times has been fairly oppressive or reserved for folks with a lot of means and privilege. Do you find those conversations are happening amongst your colleagues? Among my, among a few of my colleagues, perhaps. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. Not always a safe thing to discuss. Yeah. So, um, Oh, God help me. What happens after you guys put this on the internet or something? (laughs) But, you know, whatever. I'm just going to dive in, participate and see how it goes. I think, I think, you know, 
Mm. If it's dairy, dive in a little bit. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, we are so appreciative of you sharing and think it's such an important space that needs that needs examination and needs to be dialogued about um how can we serve people the best way that that we can and how can we change these things that have been in place that are not serving people i think it starts with dialogue and non-defensiveness you know Mm -hmm. it's funny before this before this talk i found myself starting to like review materials and think about talking points. And then I was like, you know what? What is it like to not be so rigid and just dive in a little bit and see what happens? Mm-hmm. And to be okay with with uncertainties or messiness, right? Mm-hmm. I encourage folks to do the same in my office that it's like mm-hmm. you're able to just come and be present and be willing. There's such a scarcity of that in our world right now. We like you were saying earlier, you know, we want to get ourselves together get our expertise and our points all lined up and then come forward, you know, which, what vulnerability does that require of us? Yeah, very much. <laughs> Absolutely. I was listening to something Brene Brown was talking about. I think what I loved about what she said was, you know, self-care. I think it was something on the lines of self-care is about caring for others, not caring for yourself, but caring for others. And I do think the willingness to dialogue, the willingness to sort of, um, be together in space can be really transformative. You know, mm-hmm. that is my mm-hmm. hope. And especially for queer folks where space sometimes is scarce. And mm-hmm. like you said, there's literally a fear for your life in many instances. Mm-hmm. Having safe spaces is something that I think is really necessary. And it's my hope that those spaces we create in the room can be translated outwards into other parts of our lives. Yes. Spot, hopefully. Nowhere to go but up, right? <laughs> we hope. Right? <laughs> right? I'm just asking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I wanna I mean you you were talking about this already, but I wanna ask, is there you know, just bringing more awareness to what can culturally sensitive care look like for people with multiple minority identities in the therapeutic space outside of it? Just anything you'd like to share on that? You know, I think part of it starts with resisting the urge to be the expert, right? Mm -hmm. I think vulnerability begins when you can acknowledge that you don't have all the answers, but you're willing to listen. And you're willing to do the inner self-examination. With a lot of my folks that I do work with, when I talk about what that looks like, is to ask yourself, you know, what spaces of my life do I occupy privilege? And in what parts of my life and what parts of my identity are oppressed and where do they intersect? And I think sometimes that's a good exercise to begin that inner self-examination, right? Because I think a lot of time the idea of like queer competent care, LGBTQ affirming care is, is like, oh, I know the lingo, I know the terms, mm-hmm. I'm super non-judgmental, mm-hmm. but that's really not all the work, right? Yeah. It's also being able to look at yourself and see like, huh, are there times where I do perpetuate homophobia? You know, am I as inclusive as I, as I perceive myself to be? And where are my blind spots? I think those are important questions mm-hmm. for people to ask. And also to be able to say, I don't know. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's huge. <laughs> 
Because I'm telling you, you go, you go to LGBTQ seminars, you'll find a lot of stuff out there on like competent care, clinical 101, gender and sexuality 101. But you know, it's not, it's not everything, right? Can't like race to become an expert so that we can... Yeah. <laughs> safer place to be, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of external validation that comes with that. Yeah. Whether you're on your like 10th book or you're doing <laughs> something. Yeah. So. That is so, that's so good. That's such an important thing to call out and especially in where our world is right now and how we really want that. We really want to check it off and move along. (laughs) This has flown by. It could talk to you for hours about this, but I do want to ask you if there's anything else that we didn't hit on that you wanted to talk about. Like I said, I appreciate the opportunity to have space to just dialogue about this, you know. I think we need to have these spaces that can push us outside of our comfort zone and and to do more self-examination and to also have a little fun, you know, and to be able to laugh a little bit. Because I do think that there's so much pain right now that there has to be some balance between that and, and the realities of what we're coping with. With all that's going on still globally with COVID and the pain that we're sitting with and the sort of languishing sort of hopelessness that I think so many folks are feeling. I think coming together in in community and fellowship is a wonderful way just to create healing spaces, you know, and hopefully there's nowhere but up to go. That's that's my hope and your hope. Yes, yes. We'll hold that together. Yes. Gosh, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for talking to me and for teaching me and encouraging me to learn and to be open and to self-examine and I'm just really grateful for you sharing yourself and your practice and your wisdom. Oh thank you so much. I appreciate it. This episode was produced by Dave Emmer. Self Studies is a podcast by Alma a company dedicated to simplifying access to high-quality in-network mental health care for both consumers and clinicians. To learn more, visit helloalma.com.